Now, these successors were known as the diodicae, and diodicae basically means the successors. The diodicae ended up going to war with each other. His generals begin to fight each other. And as they begin fighting each other for this territory, they eventually, general after general begins to fall, or general after general begins to fall under the leadership of another general. And by the end, by the height of this fighting, there's about five major generals that have come out of this. Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, Seleucid, and Antigonus. And they begin, these five begin to duke it out. Now, Seleucid begins to take what we know as Mesopotamia and going into India. And Ptolemy ends up taking Egypt and Syria, or what we know where Israel is today. And Antigonus takes what we know today as Turkey, which was Anatolia or Asia Minor at that time period. And they begin to fight it out. Now Cassander and Lysimachus basically take Macedonia and Thrace. And they were the weaker of all these five generals, Cassander and Lysimachus. And they're mostly fighting just to hold on to Thrace and to Macedonia. But the other three generals, Seleucid and Antigonus, Antigonus and um, Ptolemy, they're the big bad boys that are actually fighting for the big piece of the pie, so to speak. And they launch in these series of wars, war after war after war. And Antigonus is incredibly successful. And he's basically driving Seleucid back and conquering all of his territory. And Seleucid makes an, an alliance with Ptolemy and joins him in order to defeat Antigonus. And eventually in 301 BC at the Battle of Ipsus, because that was where it was located, they both defeat Antigonus I. And at that period, Ptolemy kind of moves down into Egypt and Syria, and Seleucid controls everything from modern-day Turkey all the way into India, although he will begin to lose a lot of what we know as China-Russia very quickly over time. And so the empire is very quickly divided up among these four generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, and the two big bad boys are Ptolemy and Seleucid. Now, if you were here for the Daniel study, you remember that they, they are the dominant ones. Remember, Ptolemy controls Israel. So at this point, Judah is no longer under the control of the Persians. Now they're under the control of the Ptolemies. And those the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are both Greek in their worldview and culture and religion. They are very much opposed to each other. And they very much don't like each other. And they're going to be at war over and over and over again. And so if you remember the last several chapters of Daniel, chapters 11 and 12, it's the king of the north and the king of the south constantly at war each other. And that was a big giant mess of assassination, betrayals, and all that kind of stuff. So this begins to ensue over time. These Greek rulers brought the Hellenization of the Eastern world. The philosophy of Hellenism asserts that the Greek worldview and culture are superior to all others, and thus all others should become Greek in their worldview and culture. Man's ability to reason and accomplish anything he puts his mind to is the core of the Greek culture. The human mind and reasoning is everything. And so reason is everything. Intellect is everything. We already mentioned this, but Protagoras stated that man is the measure of all things. The Greeks emphasized reason, individualism, competition, the art for the sake of entertainment. 
They developed the theater, organized sports for the sake of competition, education based on instruction of experts and several subjects, rather than lifelong mentorship under one teacher, and art that emphasized the accomplishments of man, the human body. This is what they brought. In the Eastern world, in a lot of even the Western world, but in the Eastern world especially, their idea is that the gods are the primary source of wisdom. And that you go to the gods or the, the, the sages or the, the, the voices and they lead you and the gods control your fate. Now the Greeks also believe that. But the Greeks were beginning to emphasize the reason of man. That man himself could either at least reason and, and think like the gods or maybe even surpass them in their own intelligence. Reason and intellect became more superior than the, the gods and the, the, that kind of stuff. The other thing was that in the Eastern world, community is everything. And, and you, you, you subordinate your individualism to the will of the community. And your, the career that you pick, the people that you marry, the things that you do benefit the community. This is, there's a spectrum. It can be extreme or it can be minor. But even today, um, if you've ever been to Japan or you go to China, they have a very honor culture, an honor-shame culture. And they believe that their lives are dedicated to serving the company. And the company actually supersedes their individualism. Getting good grades and, and pleasing your parents supersedes your own desires and your own future and that kind of stuff. In the Middle East, the, the Muslims believe that your individuality is so minor that you should be willing to blow yourself up for the sake, now that not every single Muslim believes in suicide bombers, but that, that idea that you will die for the sake of the community, even in a suicide bomb. And so everybody in the Eastern world is in a, a different place along the spectrum, but the idea is that the community is more important than the individual. Now the Greeks obviously brought individuality was more important than the community. And they're willing to even sacrifice the community for the sake of the individual. And that's where we pick this up. Even today, reason, intellect, is more important than anything to us. And individuality, my right to do this, and follow your heart and just do it. And, and you can't tell me, don't you dare judge me, and, and your vote counts and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that that's completely wrong, but that overemphasis on to the exclusion of other people when I'm making decisions for my life came from the Greek culture. Education. It used to be, in the Eastern world, you would find a teacher or a mentor and you'd become apprentice under them. And you would learn everything you knew that they knew about being a blacksmith or even the, how to be a man or a woman as you, you stood, sat under them. They would teach you about life. They'd teach you about their religion. They would teach you about the profession. And you would end up doing what they would do. Sometimes this would be your own parent or sometimes you would find somebody else to apprentice under. And we see this with Jesus taking 12 disciples under himself, and they follow him around, and he is their teacher in everything. And that, that idea of a rabbi existed all throughout Israel. He was one of hundreds of thousands of rabbis throughout human history that did something like that. But when the Greeks came along, they valued intellect, and intellect more than anything else. So basically what they said is, why would you be so limited to the thinking and the knowledge of one person? when you could sit under an expert in mathematics and learn everything you can from them, and then sit under an expert in literature and learn everything you can from them, and then sit under an expert in science and learn everything you can from them. And you go from one person to person, and that's what our modern-day education is. 
We, we rotate kids from classroom to classroom to classroom where they learn everything they can from that expert and that subject so they can hopefully become an expert in everything, which is going to produce what we know as the Renaissance man of the, 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 the 1200s and the 1500s AD in Europe, the idea of being knowledgeable in everything. And so that's a Greek way of education. In the Eastern world, entertainment was usually the family getting together and maybe playing board games, not that they had board games like we have today, but like some kind of game like that, or telling stories together, or singing songs together, or dad would play the fiddle like in Little House on the Prairie and everybody would just sit and listen, that kind of stuff. And that's, that's, that's how they did entertainment. Or they would do square, like they did do square dancing, but that kind of like square dancing idea, we are all dancing together. When the, the Greeks came along, they did entertainment where you just kind of sat there. They invented the theater. And the theater is where you would go and sit and you would be entertained. And you would have experts in entertainment. See, Dad may not be an expert in entertainment. There's a way better fiddler out there somewhere or a way better storyteller out there. And so now you can go pay and hear the expert or see the expert in music and storytelling and you get entertained. And so the theater got invented. Now, obviously, the theater was highly sexual because they're the Greeks, and it was also all about the gods, usually. And so the, their theater was very immoral and very sexual. <laughs> Nothing's very changed. And so they emphasized this idea here. So the entertainment began different. Same thing with sports. A family would get together in the backyard, and they didn't have baseball, but they would play baseball or football, or their equivalent of sports, and the family would just do it. And yeah, of course, people would like to win and that kind of stuff, but it was really just about playing and having fun together. When the Greeks came along, they emphasized competition, and they emphasized being an expert in wrestling or an expert in the javelin and running and that kind of stuff. And then the, 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 your, your value as a human is found in your ability to beat other people. And so likewise, they emphasized reason intellect more than anything else, they also value the human body higher than anything else. And so they begin to do, for the first time ever, weightlifting and emphasizing the human body and the physique and building it. And my human body can perform better than your human body. And my human body looks better than your human body. And because we're the Greek culture, we pretty much do everything naked so I can show every aspect of my human body off to you as better. And so they did this way. In fact, you could actually pick out the good wrestlers. I thought this was interesting when I learned it. Wrestlers would often oil themselves up, and they would wrestle each other, and they would wrestle naked. Everything was done naked in sports back then. And they would wrestle each other, and if you were not a very good wrestler, you would hit the ground a lot. As you hit the ground, the dirt would stick to your oiled body, and then your tan would not get as even or as deep as you wrestled in the sun. The people who had the more even, deeper tan were the better wrestlers. And you could tell it that way. And so they did these things. It was all about image. Everything was about image. Where So like remember in the ancient world, um, you kind of have some old school farmer mentality like this. So like you go to this, these farms and the barns are about ready to collapse and the tractors are like rust and everything. And like I saw this one farmer had a tractor and a steering wheel broke. So he just put one of those giant um, pipe wrenches on it and just used that to steer it. And all they care about is does it work? But the Greeks are going to come along and be like, no, we need to get that a new paint job and put flames on the side. Okay, And that was the Greek way of thinking. And so image became everything. And so thus gives birth to Cosmo magazine and Glamour magazine and all that kind of stuff. That's a Greek way of thinking. And competition became huge. Obviously, we talked about that. 
This was the introduction. Now this is going to oppose the Jewish way of thinking big time. So this time period, many Jews began to oppose Hellenism. They, they hated this idea because the idea of the community was falling apart. Um, competing against each other rather than working together became the emphasis. You, you were becoming expert in that, that reason, intellect was more important than being well-rounded kind of an idea. And, and most importantly, the Greeks were bringing their paganism, their sexuality, their absolute lack of morality into everything. And the Jews, who became highly ritualistic, who were emphasizing the law, began to oppose this. And the Jews freaked out, and rightfully so, because they went into exile because they did not obey the law. By the time the Greeks are coming along, the scribes have gained a lot of power in the culture. And the scribes are emphasizing, obey the law, we'll go into exile. So they have the fear of the exile looming over their head. And the Jews are like, I don't ever want to go through that again. I don't want to go through that again. And so the people began to follow the scribes as their source of knowledge and their life. And so they began to do everything the scribes told them to do. If you don't want to go back into exile, then you'll do what I would tell you to do. Now, first, the scribes are well-intentioned. I mean, we don't want to go back into exile. You want to live righteously and morally? I'm the one that studied the law. I'm an expert. So this is what you should do. But as the people begin to fear this encroaching Hellenism on them, they begin to go to the scribes even more. And this gave the scribes more power and influence. And thus knowing human nature, the scribes started becoming corrupt over time. They started becoming more power hungry, and they became more political in that nature. Not every single scribe, obviously. It's never true of everybody, but in a large whole. Once again, as I already mentioned, there was a group of people who said, no, that, that culture is really attractive. Okay, They would find their kids sneaking off in the middle of the night to go see the naked theater of the Greek city next to them. Right? And they, they found that culture very attractive, and the kids and the youth were wanting to go to that. And then some older people were like, if we want to survive politically and not be stamped down, then we need a compromise. And so that, that division between these two ways of thinking continued to increase and got stronger, and the divide between them got wider and wider and wider as time went on. And the Greeks became more and more prominent and powerful and influential in this time. Many, many, many people saw this as a self-glorification of humans and the paganism and nudity, then they opposed it and they began to resist it. And so there became a divide in Israel over this way of thinking as well. Under the Persians and the Ptolemies, Judah enjoyed a considerable amount of autonomy. They were pretty free. Now, the Ptolemies had taxed Israel big time and they kind of restricted their freedom of religion considerably. But overall, Israel, Judah still had considerable autonomy. They were able to kind of make their own decisions, largely speaking, run their own government, have their own religion. The main thing that the Ptolemies presented as a threat was less of them oppressing and really dominating Judah and more of their culture influencing Judah. So Judah was pretty autonomous and pretty free, except for the taxes were pretty oppressive. But it was the culture that was more seeping in and infiltrating Judah rather than political oppression. But that would change with the Seleucids. At this time, Judah has become thoroughly a temple state. The temple, the priest, are the political government. 
And so think of it as the Catholic Church and the American Congress being one in the exact same thing. All your cardinals and bishops and priests are all your senators and house members in Congress. And that's what Israel had become at this point. And there was literally no separation of church and state because your political leaders, your Congress, was the religion. And so they were the pretty thoroughly in control at this time period. The priesthood was the governing body in Judah. The high priests were pretty much selected from the family of Zadok since the time of Solomon's temple. Zadok was the family of priests. Remember, Aaron was the high priest, and then he had a couple sons, and Eleazar became the next high priest. And then Phineas was that guy who killed the improper sexual act and the tabernacle in the book of Numbers. And God says, you will, your line will be priest forever. And Zadok came from that line of Phineas. And so Solomon made sure that it was always Zadok's line who would become priest. And that would track all the way through this Greek empire time period where the, the priesthood was coming from Zadok. So they are Levites and they are becoming priests, but they're also politicians. They are also the government. But everything will change after this. After 250 BC, the Seleucids gradually lost control of the lands east of the Euphrates, and they began to focus their attention more on the region of Syria and Asia Minor, because those were the trade routes. He who controlled those controlled the trade of the world between the east and the west. So they began to focus their attention there. The Seleucids began to conquer more and more regions there. And in 198 BC, Seleucid seized control over the Levant, which we know as Syria or Israel, which included Judah. It was during this time that Rome was seizing control of the Greek city-states and Antiochus III unsuccessfully tried to defeat them. As a result, he incurred a sizable war debt to Rome. Because of this, his successors would put a heavy tax burden on Judah in order to pay this debt. Antiochus III decides that he's going to conquer Israel and take control of it. And he, in 198 BC, he successfully seized control of Judah. He also is beginning to try to attack Rome. Rome is moving in. They're the new kid on the block, so to speak. And they're slowly, gradually conquering everybody. And the Greeks are beginning to feel it more in the west as it comes in and moving towards the east. Antiochus III wants to stop this, so he tries to defeat Rome in Asia Minor, but Rome is securely taking hold. And as a result, they conquer him, and they are not powerful enough to take over his empire yet because his empire is very expansive, but they're powerful enough to heavily tax him. And by taxing him considerably, it's basically their way of saying, we will not attack you. As long as you pay the tax, we won't attack you. Now, Antiochus III still has a big empire, and Rome can't conquer him completely yet, but he's not strong enough to stop Rome completely if they choose to attack him, so he has to pay the tax to keep them at bay. And the hope is that I can build myself up and eventually defeat them. But at the same time, the tax is so steep that it begins to drain your economy, which makes it hard for you to have a superior force and defeat Rome in the process. So Rome is bleeding him dry to weaken him so they can better attack him, but he's also paying the taxes so that he doesn't get attacked by Rome and hopefully hoping somehow he can pay this tax and keep them at bay and yet find a way to also increase his army so he can attack them. So this is that, it's like the, the animal who's going trying to find a way to attack you while you're bleeding it out. 
and you're bleeding it out because you're not brave enough to attack the lion with bare handed, so to speak. And it's who will basically give up first. And that's what happens. But don't undermine Antiochus III. He's still a very powerful king, and he's not to be um, underestimated. He has to pay this tax. And so he turns his eyes on the south, and he realizes Ptolemy is much easier to defeat than Rome. So he moves towards them, and he conquers Judah. And when he conquers Judah, that's when all hell breaks out for Judah. Because what he does, is he just squeezes Judah. Now, he squeezes everybody, but especially Judah. And most people are okay with paying somebody a tax and paying the gods a tax. But the Jews don't like the pagan gods. They don't want to go back into exile. So they tend to fight paganism more than everybody else, which tends to tick their overlords off more than anybody else, which makes them kick Israel even harder than everybody else they kick. So this is the tension that's going to be created here. So Israel begins to fight back, so to speak, and Antiochus III and his successors begin to squeeze their neck for taxes more and more and more and more. And thus, this is when the tax collectors start becoming more powerful, more prominent, more prevalent. 